You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. If you have your Bible there, maybe you'd uh, turn to that passage, uh, Jonah chapter 4, and we're really looking at the passage from verse 5 to 11. Uh, I hope you remember where we left off last time. I know it's a long time ago. Uh, Jonah is angry at God. Um, He's angry at God because God is showing them a bit of compassion. Uh, Jonah, as we have seen already, was an out-and-out bigot. He hated these people. He was given a job that he didn't want to do. Well, he was, I suppose, preaching judgment. He could cope with that. But the fact that, that God showed them compassion disturbed him greatly. And so he goes out to a little booth and he's over, overlooking the city and there he sits and he waits and he watches. Uh, nothing touches a bad conscience more effectively than further undeserved kindness. It, it reminds me of Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. Let me, let me read it to you. Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. In the face of Jonah's anger, the Lord, the Lord poured out more of his love. He showed still more grace to Jonah. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. <clears throat> now when I think about Jonah sitting in that little booth and the, and the vine growing up, I have, I have a picture in my mind of somebody who's bald because the heat was really... But that, that's not right. Even if you've got a full head of hair and you're caught out in the sun, let me tell you, the sun will do your head damage. Uh, so he may or he may not have been bald. That's beside the point. But here he was. God showed him more grace in providing this vine for shade. The parallel with his flight to Tarshish is obvious. In both cases, rebellion against God is followed by favorable circumstances. Then it was the ship and a fair wind to the west. Um, here, it was the leafy shelter of a vine. Then Jonah slept with the assurance that he was free from God's call. Here, he rests happily in his shelter while he awaits the hopeful destruction of the Ninevites. And God's very goodness in giving the vine seems on the face of it to encourage Jonah to go on hoping, perhaps even expecting to see the Ninevites destroyed. But of course, this was far from the case. Instead, God was actually heaping coals of fire in Jonah's head. Jonah was pleased with his vine, but how quickly his joy was to dissipate. The very next day, what does verse 7 say? The very next day, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. God's going to use this incident to teach his servant some lessons. 
First of all, a lesson concerning free grace. A lesson concerning free grace. The Lord shows Jonah here what his grace is all about. He's saying to him, you've been concerned about this vine. Though you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. The vine was a free gift. When God removed it, he simply and unmistakably underlined that fact that it was a free gift from God. But Jonah acted as if God owed him the vine. And, and that is proof that he didn't receive it in the first place as a gift of God's grace. A gift that was freely given by the giver and wholly undeserved by the recipient. The vine, therefore, preached grace to ungracious Jonah. He loved the comfort more than he loved the giver of the comfort. I wonder how you and I react to gifts and benefits in our lives. The God we worship is such a gracious and generous God. Everything we have has been gifted to us by God. I wonder how we react when gifts are given to us, and how do we react when gifts are removed from us? Isn't it true that we often worship our vine rather than our God? But the vine may wither. All our material props may be knocked away. The health that we enjoy one day will be knocked away. Maybe the family that we have around us one day will maybe scatter and will not have them anymore or they'll be lost to us through sickness and bereavement. We must look beyond the gifts themselves to the grace of God who gives. Think of Job. He had a prosperous life. He had a fulfilled life. He had many vines. But when the vines were taken away, do you remember what his response was? Though he slay me, Yet will I hope in him. Job was something else, wasn't he? Whenever you think of what happened to Job, everything that he held dear was taken from him. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Jonah's vine vanished. He should have learned from that, that his God was a God of all grace, and that grace is his free gift. And no man who is the recipient of that grace has any right to object when God is gracious to any other man. So there's the lesson concerning free grace. But there's also a lesson here in this passage of love for the lost. God showed Jonah why he was uh, pleased about saving Nineveh. Even if the prophet was not pleased, God was pleased. He pointed out how much Jonah had been concerned about losing a vine and drew the obvious comparison with Nineveh in verse 11. You're concerned about this vine that died overnight. You haven't a concern or a thought 
for 120,000 souls in that great city. If Jonah had pity in his vine, should the Lord not have pity on a city of such a size? Now, folks, when God asked that question, should I not be concerned about that great city? The answer's a given, isn't it? The answer's understood. I certainly am concerned. Should I not be concerned? Of course I am. That's what he's saying. You see, Jonah had had written off the heathen nations as just satanic fodder, as, as, you know, stuff to be burned in hell. But surely the Lord's question to Jonah long ago is application to us, does it not? Does he not say to us today, does he not come to us and say, should you not be concerned about the people around you? Should you not be concerned about the people who live in your home, who are without Christ and without hope? Should you not be concerned about the people that you go to school with or go to college with, the people that you work side by side with day after day? What about your extended family that that you don't see only on special occasions like funerals? or special anniversaries. Should you not be concerned about them? I I would suggest that this question calls for a very definite and a thoroughly practical response from every Christian. Three things ought to come before us for our consideration, I would suggest. First of all, a concern for a perishing world concern for a perishing world. It's possible to talk about our concern for non-Christians and yet at the same time be quite cold and detached and matter-of-fact and unmotivated in our hearts. It's easy to talk the talk. Actions speak louder than words. We are concerned about the lost to a degree, but unmoved. Wonder, does that describe us? We shed no tears for the plight of those for whom we profess to be concerned. In practice, we contribute, you know, to the to the missionary efforts of the church. We we are generous, we think, with our money towards that. We hope that the minister, whoever he is when he comes, will will build up the congregation here at home. But where is our concern for the evangelization of the human race? Where's your concern, my concern? This gospel, Jesus said, he wants it to go to every part of the world, to every language, every culture, every people. And and we use all kinds of excuses, don't we? We're, We're too busy. We're too busy. We're, we're afraid to offend our neighbors. Or, sure, that's a job we, we leave to the experts. Maybe you feel that you don't have the gift of speaking to others. Well, actually, that's, that's a non-runner, isn't it? You don't have the gift to speak to others. That means you don't have a, 
a smartphone. You don't ever talk to anybody in your phone. Funny how people have difficulty speaking, but give them a phone and suddenly they can talk to anybody. So that won't wash. Or, or maybe, I don't know the Bible well enough. Well, let me ask you, why don't you know the Bible well enough? Why don't you know? Bible knowledge isn't, isn't uh, imparted to us by osmosis. Is that the word you know, that you're zapped? No. You have to spend time. You've got to invest time in reading the Bible and getting to know what it says, applying yourselves to it. So that won't wash either. None, none of these things, none of these excuses relieve the Christian from the privilege of seeking to point others to the Lord Jesus. Whatever gifts we have or don't have, whatever opportunities or circumstances, one thing is certain. We'll never begin to reach Christ, to reach people for Christ, until and unless our concern comes down from our heads into our hearts until we're moved with compassion out of a burning love for people. It means having a real concern for them and for their present happiness and for their future eternal destiny. Concern for a perishing world. So let me ask you, do you have it? you have it? When Jesus saw the multitudes, it moved them to tears. They were like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. But what about evangelism? And I know this congregation is involved in evangelism, but I'm sure, I'm sure the group that does it is a fairly small group. And I'm sure you'd welcome volunteers, more volunteers. The question is this, not are you able? That's not the question. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing to become involved? Because if you're willing to become involved, God will, will enable you. God will make you able to do it. God challenged Jonah's motives. Was he concerned for Nineveh? Did he love those lost, hell-deserving sinners? No, he did not. He didn't want to see them saved. And folks, God challenges us, you and me, this evening. Do you love the people, for instance, of this town? Do you want to see them saved? Concern for the lost world means wanting them to be saved by the same grace of the same crucified and risen Savior who saved us and brought us to a living faith and a new life. Concern for a perishing world. But then there's commitment to practical evangelism. Most people see evangelism as event-led. That is, our evangelism is, 
is locked into particular methods and specific programs. It, it's seen as something that is organized for a week or a month. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with organizing evangelistic events like a mission or a holiday Bible club. There's nothing wrong with that. It's to be encouraged. But evangelism that the church is to be involved in is so much more than that, I believe. It ought to be a way of life. It ought to be the way we live our lives. How we live in our homes. How we act in our fellowship. How we work in the community. We should stand out, those of us who know the Lord, we should stand out from the rest of people. People should see these people are different. Evangelism is the Christian's way of life in his home, his family, and his church. Evangelism happens when Christian lives faithfully in the world. Do you remember what Jesus said? Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That they see it, that it's something that's observable, something that is different. Concern for a perishing world. Commitment to practical evangelism. And finally, confidence in God's purpose to save. Confidence in God's purpose to save. Jonah wanted no more than judgment on Nineveh. That's what he wanted. That's what he was longing for. But he was probably still more optimistic than many Christians in the West today in that he was afraid that God was going to spare these Ninevites. Even though he wanted them destroyed, Jonah believed that God was going to spare them. We are afraid that God is not going to save many of our fellow countrymen. Unlike Jonah, we do not quite believe that God is so gracious. Unlike Jonah, we do not believe that, that God is so compassionate and slow to anger. We get overwhelmed by the secularization of the world. We walk by sight rather than by faith. But ought we not to uh, hold on to the promises of God? The psalmist in Psalm 72 and verse 17, all nations will be blessed, and he's referring here to the coming Messiah, and they will call him blessed. Or Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Fellow believer, do you believe that? Do you believe that there's a day coming that that's going to happen? Our God reigns. He's in control. Not, not Satan, not the world. There's a day coming when every knee, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The biblical perspective is one of advance and conquest against the gates of hell, which cannot prevail against the church. God gave his son not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that, I believe, is the meaning of the book of Jonah. What happened to Nineveh has happened and is happening to people of every nation, race, and language to this day. 
the one who is greater than Jonah has come. He has taken our flesh. He's lived among us. He has borne our sins in his sufferings and death. And he has risen from the dead in triumph to accomplish the salvation of his people. And this salvation, as we know, is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us leave this little gem of a book praying that God will give us a concern for a perishing world, will give us a commitment to practical evangelism, and will give us a confidence in God's purpose to save. God's amazing grace in saving heathens like the Ninevites. Does that not encourage you? Whenever you see what these people were like, they were dreadful people. And God had mercy on them. And God sent even a reluctant prophet to preach judgment. And God sent salvation. He's the same God today. The God of Jonah is our God. The God of Paul the Apostle is our God. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is our God. His power is not limited in any way, just the same as what it was then. He's the God who works out his purpose, and he has a plan to save all of his elect. And so our, our responsibility, those of us who know him and love him, is to obey him and go into all the world, starting at our Jerusalem. That's for you, Machrafel. And then wherever he leads you. But what about those of you who aren't Christians? Well, actually, you're in the same position as those Ninevites before they heard the gospel. You're under the wrath of God. You're under the just condemnation of God. And your future, if you continue as you are, is bleak with a capital B. So you need to do what these Ninevites did. And as you read through the book of Jonah, you see what they did. They took to heart the message that they heard. They cried to God for mercy. They repented. And they were saved. And that's what you need to do. It's as simple as that. That is what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to turn from everything you know to be wrong. And put your trust in him. And he will save you. And listen. He's got a job for you to do. That only you can do. So let's be up and doing. <clears throat> let's not be waiting for the new minister to come and motivate you. This is something all of us need to be active, be involved in, in the here and now. Let's pray together. Mm -hmm.